the gospel lesson comes to us from the good news according to St. Matthew, the fifth chapter. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the gospel of our Lord. All right. I don't know if this is a warning or a promise. It probably depends on your personality, but uh, I'm going to attempt a bit of a long and reckless walk through a thorny area or even a minefield with this sermon. Uh, Just seeing the title, my own wife and Pastor Brian were like, are you sure, buddy? I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we're here. Let me pray, and uh, we'll consider the Beatitudes together in this time of reflection in this sermon. Let's pray. Father, we live in a real complicated and messy world, and we are real complicated and sometimes messy people. And so we pray that you would By the power of your spirit, make this time of reflection uh, upon Jesus' great sermon uh, that you would would use this time, that whatever I say or don't say doesn't matter nearly as much as the power of your spirit working in the hearts and minds of each person that hears. And so bring us renewal and transformation and guidance, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. So just a couple years ago... um, there was this scene that all of you have seen. It was a very strange thing. If you just saw it, you're trying to put together, look at the cultural motifs, and you're like, I'm not sure exactly what this is. It seems that this is a crowd of people who are extremely angry. I see a lots of symbols, kind of, are those Nazi symbols? Are they neo-Nazi symbols? I'm not sure what that is. There's a lot of paramilitary garb. And man, there's a whole bunch of Bible verses and crosses next to weapons. And these people are breaking into the capital of this particular country, this nation, and threatening and screaming to kill elected officials while they proclaim the name of Christ. What is this? It's unclear. 
When I first became a Christian, someone told me about Jesus through young life. I was a high school student, loved the idea of Jesus, reading about Jesus, loved the love that people were treating me with. It was awesome. I get to college. I joined my first church, and it was a wonderful church. It still is, and I'm really good friends with these people, all of them. Uh, but my first elder, uh, I became the youth pastor there. And because I was a youth pastor and had a little bit of free time, and he would borrow me and take me as his handler. And we'd go around these colleges. He's a professor at the University of Texas, and he wrote a book uh, called Compassionate Conservatism, which would then go on to be co-opted by the Bush administration to become central to their uh, tenets that they were trying to live out. And that's when I first realized that, oh, Christianity is not just like Jesus and me. There's like this whole thing where people are following Jesus, but also they're really interested in politics and culture and media and Sometimes they seem to be really angry. Sometimes they're supportive. What is this thing, this Jesus thing? And yet all this stuff in the culture, some people seem positive. Some people seem negative. Sometimes it seems like the two are married together. I can't really make heads or tails of this. And of course, by invoking the insurrection, I'm just giving an end to the best picture we've had in the States of the inevitable conclusion of what we call culture war. And I don't think I need to describe it to you. You've heard that phrase most of your life probably, even just reading the New York Times. Culture war. It's this idea that there is a war between certain kinds of people and certain kinds of cultures and other kinds of cultures here in the States or in the West. And if you are thoughtful about it, you'll realize that although most of our neighbors would identify Christians as those who are on one side of the culture war, the fact is, is that Christians have been involved on all sides of any topic or movement. Um, if you include all the churches and all the different Christianities, they've been all over the place. Of course, there are other rallies earlier in the 20th century that included peaceful marches and prayer, and pastors were leading them, and they sung spiritual songs, and the speeches sound like sermons, and this was a part of the civil rights movement. How do we make sense of this all? What I'm going to do is raise a bunch of these questions and then fail to answer them during this time together. I'm just going to warn you right now. You'll be disappointed if you want my answer to the details. We know that the devil is in the details, and so is God. But this is just one sermon, and it's about the Sermon on the Mount, but we want to apply it to us and give us what I would call just a paradigm. So not so much the details, but just how do we make sense of this milieu we find ourselves in, where there's Jesus, and there's culture, and there's us, how do we make sense of it all? And I want to give us a wide angle just to pull back, to begin to understand the right relationship between God, his people, and the world. Perhaps you're uh, theologically inclined and you've heard of this already. If not, I'm going to inform you. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But one of the most famous works to help us understand what he called Christ and culture was written by Richard Niebuhr, who's a Christian theological ethicist, in the 20th century as a professor at Yale. He wrote the book, Christ and Culture, what kind of became throughout the 20th century, and in some ways still today, the most definitive work uh, about what it means to understand the interaction between Christ and culture. And he had five paradigms of Christ and culture. I'm going to explain them to you, but not in depth, just quickly. His first is called Christ against culture. And this is where there's lines between Christ and the church and the world are very sharp because the church is a community whose existence judges the world. He gives examples of people like the monastics and other sorts of soaks. But at the end, he kind of, and by the way, just to give away the ending, he says all these have a little bit of truth in them, but he has his favorites that he thinks are better and more faithful. He rejects this one as ultimately inadequate, 
because it has, it's unable to extricate itself from the culture it condemns. But it's always still a part of culture. You can't ever be totally separate from culture. Then there's what he called the Christ of culture. Uh, this is where there's a lack of tension between the church and the world. Jesus becomes the fulfiller of society's best hopes and aspirations. He would ultimately say this one is um, incomplete as well because although it's appealing to the elite and powerful groups within a civilization, he sees it as inadequate for allowing loyalty to culture to trump loyalty to Christ. Um, sorry, it allows loyalty to culture to trump loyalty to Christ. And so he sees that as its deficiency. There's Christ above culture, which I actually won't try to explain because I still don't understand it, but it's some sort of synthesis and symbiosis and sometimes tension between Christ and between culture. Uh, the example he gives is Thomas Aquinas trying to take uh, the, best of the best of the culture of the world and the best of Christ and come up with the sort of tension and synthesis uh, between the two. And so you see a combination between reason and revelation, creation and redemption, nature and grace. So that's the best I can do with that one. Uh, Christ and culture in paradox. This is a, a version of the Christ above culture almost, that there's this conflict between God and humanity, and this conflict will ever be present. And this, presence, this conflict will be present between Christ and culture as well. And he recognizes the power of this view because of the way it corresponds to our experience, but, experience, but he finds it inadequate because it tends to either go towards antinomianism or cultural conservatism. So that is like, the tension can't hold, so either there's anything goes or like it's very rigid. Lastly, Christ the transformer of culture. This you might call the conversionist version of Christ above culture. According to this view, all of culture is under the judgment of God, and yet culture is also under God's sovereign rule. Therefore, quote, the Christian must carry on cultural work in obedience to the Lord. This emphasizes the goodness of creation, uh, the conversionist affirms what can be affirmed and seeks to transform what is corrupted by sin and selfishness. But eternal life begins now already and will grow and become the not yet will become uh, available to us one day. He thinks this is the best probably and he uses the apostle John as a biblical advocate for this perspective. Uh, if you have, if I had to say, uh, the Resurrection Network over the years had probably, if I had to pick one, would have identified with this last idea. It's a very kind of uh, Augustinian and Western Reformed kind of way to think about uh, Christ transforming culture. But many people have uh, stated since, especially in the 21st century, that this was helpful, but it's also incomplete. I'll tell you my perspective on why I think these whole paradigms, this taxonomy is incomplete, because for a few reasons, throughout the sermon I'll mention a few reasons, but here's the first one. The problem with all of these is that they tend to over-identify you and me, that is, Christians, any church. It tends to over-identify us with Christ. The Christ and culture, we kind of, you even heard me slip as I was uh, reading his descriptions. He means church and culture. But is every church Christ completely? And so we over-identify with Christ it makes us feel like we're on one side and everyone out there is outside. It's the enemy or whatever, whatever our posture is, we are the Christ. And the problem is, of course, is that we are always, as human beings, we are always culture still. Individually, families of origin, nations, times of history, we are always embedded, local, temporal culture. And so if that's true, what is the right relationship between Christ 
the culture that is us as time-bound people and other cultures different from us that we find ourselves in the midst of. And notice that I started saying cultures, both church cultures in the middle there and cultures around us. Because it's just as true to say that there are South American Catholic Christianities and there are North American Baptist Christianities. They are cultures. They are cultures. And then they find themselves in cultures. And so to get into this, I'm going to shift. I told you it's going to be a messy, quick walk, trying to dodge the mines or not, whatever. The question to get in there to understand, well, what, what animates this and how do we go forward? How do we know what is right? What is the best way to think about ourselves and our mission in the world vis-a-vis God and the world we live in and ourselves? And I think there's a, a, to shift a question that helps us understand how all of these things are powered and how they are motivated and how they make people do the things they do and the cultures that they make. And that is to ask this question, what is our vision of the good life? What is our vision of the good life for us and for those around us and those we find ourselves living in community with, whether that be a local community or a city or a nation or a world? See, as human beings, God has made us so that we we can't help ourselves but pursue some vision of the good life. It's how we're hardwired. We're hardwired to pursue happiness. See, the crowd at the Capitol was pursuing and living out their vision of the good life trying to conquer militarily and politically to get their vision of the good life out there and in power. The civil rights leaders were pursuing and living out their vision of the good life, trying to stubbornly be seen and demand the rights that they had been promised by their country. See, the church is not America, and yet nations like individuals pursue their vision. And so in America, we have this charter of the good life, You've heard it. It's called the Declaration of Independence, right? And all the other documents associated with it. And we say things like, everyone is equal and endowed with their, by their creator with great gifts. And they are made to have life and liberty and the pursuit of what? Happiness. Happiness. This is some of their unalienable rights to pursue happiness, to pursue their vision of the good life. The vision of the good life. See, we need founding charters. We need principles. We need guides. We need laws. We need individuals, institutions, and communities to live them out. We're also tempted in our culture to think that we're radical individuals, but happiness is this strange alchemy between vision, law, culture, neighbor, me. The good life is corporate and individual. It's part of being human. The Bible calls it abundant life, shalom, or in this text, blessedness, to be blessed. And this word in the Greek is literally the word happy. Happy are those who, happy are those who. Of course, it has this understanding that the happiness is a gift from God, so therefore blessed. But really, the word is just happy. And it shows up throughout the Bible from the beginning. God blessed Adam and Eve, the first human beings. He wanted to make them happy. He had a vision for them to live out a culture of happiness, of good life. And then he went to Abraham, and we'll read this a little bit later, and said, I choose you the smallest, the least, the last, the overlooked, in order to make of you a great nation. And when I do that, it's 
It's me blessing you. It's me making you happy so that you can go out and be a blessing to bring happiness to all the families of the earth. He repeats this to Israel when he makes them and leads them out through salvation. Jesus now, as we've seen in the last few weeks, is reliving Israel's life. The people of God in the Old Testament, he's reliving it. We're seeing it here in these first few chapters of Matthew, that he is reliving out our call to the good life, to what makes us happy. And so he's baptized just as they went through the Red Sea. He's wandering through the wilderness. We see in chapter four, he went out and relived their wilderness wanderings, but was victorious over sin and temptation rather than giving into it as Israel had done. And then just as they went up on the mountain and received the Torah and the law of God and the Ten Commandments, Jesus goes up on a mountain, the next thing. So baptized, goes into the wilderness, goes up to a mountain and gives his declaration of dependence. His charter of salvation, his vision of the good life for society as a community of people and as individuals. He says, here's God's answer to what makes for true happiness. This is the ideal for which you should strive. This is what it means to live happy as an individual in this community. This is what I want for my kingdom and for all the churches who are trying to live out and in the kingdom life. He says, this will be good and true happiness. And with the echoes of Genesis 12, where God had gone to Abraham and he said, I say to you, go from your country, leave your father's house, leave your land, leave your culture, and go where I'm going to show you. And when you do, I'll make you great. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that you will become a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I'll curse those who curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Not even a mission. It's just a promise. I'm going to bless you. So let me bless you. And as you let me bless you, we're going to bless the whole earth. See, God's vision is to bless the least that he might bless the world he wants everyone to have the true good life. A little bit of that conversionist part, Christ in conversion, right? But here's the problem. We have other visions opposed to his vision. It's what we might call sin. Abraham received this blessing by grace. And while he would become the instrument of God's vision, he often resisted it, refused it, distorted God's vision for him. As a sinner, his heart would turn to other things and visions and hopes and securities many times. He would not keep his mission to bless others with the good life in the forefront of his motivations throughout his entire life. His, Israel, his children, his followers, the same thing. They were to live out this blessing. They were claimed, rescued, washed, tested, taught. They were told about the good life. They were given the Torah and the commandments. In the context of a place where all the nations would be traveling through them, they were to have this culture that God showed them to the Torah to live it out so that others would come through and experience it and be blessed by it and then want to be a part of it. Take it home with them or move, join them. Instead, they would turn often to false gods and to armies and to wars and prosperity and security. Israel would be warred against, but they would also be tempted. Always they were to keep God's gracious blessing, his vision of happiness in the forefront of their mind and their life and their culture. If they were going to bless people, this is how they would bless others. When warred against or warred within through temptation, they were to return to the happiness and blessing of God. As they did that, they would be a blessing. And so Jesus is here. 
He's reliving Abraham's call. He's reliving Israel's call. He's already gone into the wilderness and conquered the temptations. He's been warred against by Satan and his minions. He's had victory. He's begun healing people and proclaiming the kingdom. And now he goes up to give the new commandment, the new charter, the new vision of the good life. You remember, he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain. He sat down and his disciples came to him. So he had his disciples there, but also a great crowd around them checking it out. Listen to him as the new Moses describe the life of happiness, describing the good life of God that we can have. And they're called beatitudes, blessings. The blessings come first, just as with Abraham, so that the followers of God might be blessed, live into that gracious blessing and happiness, and therefore bless the world. And so let's dig into the Beatitudes a little bit here for a few minutes. I know I've read this before, so those at Clinton Hill will have heard this, but I can't pass it up again. It's so good. The writer Virginia Stem Owens once gave her class, she was a teacher as well, an exercise of reading this Sermon on the Mount and to write an essay in response to it. She says that some students had heard of the Sermon on the Mount while others were completely unfamiliar, but one thing they had in common, the entire class hated it. These are quotes from the essays. Ready? There's an old saying that you shouldn't believe everything you read, and it applies in this case. This preaching is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin. Then this one. I did not like the essay Sermon on the Mount. It made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Then lastly, the things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? To be angry and to insult someone is like murder. This is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. At first, Virginia Simmons was shocked, but then she found reason to be encouraged. She wrote this. I find it strangely heartening that the Bible remains offensive to honest, ignorant ears, just as it was in the first century. This was the real thing, a pristine response to the gospel, unfiltered through a two-millennia cultural haze. If there is going to be a culture war that I would endorse, it is this kind of culture war. To understand that we ourselves are the battleground. And there is a good life of God given to us. And yet there is so much within us and around us that resists it and finds it offensive and absurd. And so there's this war within us. Which will we believe? Which will we trust in? The Beatitudes? The Sermon on the Mount? the way and life of Jesus and his good life, or this one that feels a little more safe or just really gets my self-righteous anger going, which feels good or comforts me and takes me away from the things of God. See, the problem with culture war or even the idea is that Jesus didn't spend any time talking to anyone in power in Rome in his entire ministry. He didn't even really go after the leaders of Jerusalem or anything. What he was actually doing, the only people that he reserved his, his toughest critique for were religious leaders who weren't faithfully living out God's vision of good life, or instead were living out power and electoral politics, their version. Didn't have an electorate, but their version of politics. Every time someone comes up, like, should we pay taxes? Like, sure. You know, like that's over there. I'm dealing with you, the people of God, and your culture as the church of the time is not yet sufficiently my culture. 
And so he didn't have much use for martial methods or means. No weapons. Put down your sword. Something different here. Something where he says, this is a vision of the good life. And let me just repeat them and understand why there is naturally a war. And I don't mean literal war, but just a, a tension, a conflict between God's vision and our natural vision. We'll rewrite the Beatitudes to do this. Isn't it true that often we think these things and believe these things? Even if we don't think them, we do them because we believe deep down they will give us life and happiness. Blessed are those who aren't poor, but rather those who are rich, for they shall inherit and own the earth and rest in peace and safety. Blessed are those who don't mourn, but who laugh and are the life of the party, for they will be comforted by many friends. Blessed are those who are not meek, but rather strong and powerful, for to the victor belong the spoils, and the powerful will never be victims. Blessed are those who don't hunger and thirst for anything, but who are already filled and have it all, for they will have the time of their lives. Blessed are those whose hearts are filled not with some antiquated notion of purity, but whose hearts are filled with quote-unquote love, who are fully liberated. They are the little ones who will be seen as gods and goddesses. Blessed are those who show no mercy, who are not soft and weak, but who seek real justice, which means that the guilty will pay in such a way that they'll never even contemplate crossing you again. They won't receive mercy. They won't need it. They'll receive respect. Blessed are those who are the real peacemakers, who realize that peace only comes from force and fear of retribution. They will be called not frail children, but master and Lord. And blessed are those who don't suffer any type of persecution or pain, but rather who are liked by everyone, who are never critical or judgmental, who live and let live, about whom everybody says only good things. They don't need a phony promise of a future heaven because their heaven is already on earth. Do you have any sway in whatever culture you participate in? In your life, in your own heart, in your own actions? Which brings me to an important other problem with this Christ and culture taxonomy. It's not only that we aren't Christ, that we are always culturally embedded, even as Christians. It's that Christ is not an ideology. Christ is a person. Christ is a presence. And so it's important for you to hear that Jesus himself can tell you that this is the vision of the good life. This is what you are to do because he's saying this is who I am. In this world, as it is. In this broken, fallen, beautiful world that I'm redeeming, this is what it means to live a good life. This is what it means to be happy and blessed. I am the Beatitudes. Jesus was so poor, he didn't even have a place to lay his head. Jesus mourned. He wept over Jerusalem and Lazarus. He was meek. He self-identified as, quote, meek and humble of heart. He hungered and thirsted for righteousness, saying that his very hunger, his food, was to do the will of his Father, to finish his work. Jesus was merciful, as we see with the adulterous woman and many others. He was pure in heart. He taught that out of our heart flows our thoughts and our deeds, and out of, a good, out of the good tree is good fruit, and so from a good heart flows good things. He was a peacemaker. He was the Prince of Peace. He effected a definitive peace and peace treaty between God and human beings, and he signed it with his own blood. 
And they sent out his apostles, his apostles to be peacemakers, bringing his peace and shalom to the world. He was persecuted for the sake of righteousness. From the scribes and Pharisees to the passersby to false witnesses at his trial to Roman soldiers and Herod and Pilate, notice all the rulers of the culture. To the thief on his left, everyone reviled him, persecuted him, uttered all kinds of evil against him falsely, but he rejoiced because this was the path of our salvation, of our blessedness, of our happiness. And he secured for us the inevitable rewards of his eternal presence in the new heavens and the new earth. And so he, in effect, is saying, as he did, as we saw last week, follow me. Follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. Trust that this is blessed, that I am the one who brings blessing and happiness. The way that I live in this broken world, whatever warfare he came and the way that he warred against or with us and the culture, that this is the way for us to follow. This is how we'll find happiness and blessing. This is how we'll have a communal kingdom life. It's a charter for God's new community. It's a charter for us. And it's important to realize they aren't just romantic ideals, that as we believe them and live them out, that is Jesus living more deeply into us. And so if we want to understand the Beatitudes, Christ and culture, we have to think Christ. A ball of dough, which is us, some of us more than others. And he is the leaven. And as long as I'm still in this life and people are still in this life, we will always only ever be a mix of dough and leaven working through the dough. We will always be culture. The question is, how much are we allowing ourselves to also be Christ? We will know if we are living out the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are the way we can see the fruit. If we are finding ourselves to be merciful and mournful and persecuted, pure in heart and vision, poor of spirit, humble. It takes a community to live out the Beatitudes. It takes the work of God's spirit in us and to live it out. And I think one of the ways you can be encouraged, and I'll close in the next two minutes with this, is to understand well, that doesn't seem like happiness. Poverty of spirit, humility, dependence, mourning with those who mourn, suffering, being rejected. That doesn't sound like it's happy. To trust and believe that it is true, but also here's another little tip. That true blessedness, true happiness depends entirely on timing. Most of the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are those who, because theirs will be. It will happen. That is most of the Beatitudes. The things that he says that happen now are possessing the kingdom. Verse 2. I have to flip back here to find it. I'll just read you verse 2. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is now the kingdom of heaven. Kingdom of heaven belongs to you. And then verse 12, 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Poverty of spirit and persecution now is what we're promised. And the kingdom of heaven now. This kingdom that it takes new eyes to see, eyes that only God 
can give. To believe. The rest is a future promise. That this is how it will end. This is how the world will end. This is God and everyone's future. That all will be made. No longer this death rattle of war against God's vision, but eventually the world will be filled with the glory and knowledge of the Lord, with true happiness, with true blessedness. People will be filled with all of these beatitudes throughout the earth. And to believe that now is kind of like when you were a kid, or at least those of you old enough, when you were a kid, you're given spy glasses to see the invisible ink. The beatitudes are like that. They're written on the universe because God made the universe and it's his character. But you need the spirit and community to believe that and to see it now. It's not naturally intuitive to all of us. That's why there's a war within us. It doesn't seem to be true of the world that these are the people who are happy. But it is. If Jesus is to be believed, then it is. So when you're tempted, when you want to destroy someone else or make an enemy of yourself or someone else or some other culture, receive this blessing to be truly blessed by God with his vision of the good life. It's coming into being even now. And so a paradigm, I don't really want to pick from the five. I'll take the title of his book, Christ and Culture. We are always a culture or cultures. But the more that we let this Christ, not the Christ we invent, to fit our culture, but the Christ of the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, the more that we let this Christ come into our culture at resurrection, in our families, in our city, the more that we will be happy and blessed. To believe Jesus' charter for salvation, his vision for the good life, his promise of where true happiness lies, to trust him to work this blessing within us and to make us happy as he does so, remember that the command here is simply to be blessed. It's not to go out and transform the world and make them blessed. It's if you let yourself be blessed by God in these ways, you will naturally be a blessing. We trust the work to him. We can leave it up to him. So this morning, friends, believe Jesus. Be happy. Be blessed with the Beatitudes. If you do so more and more, and if we do so more and more together, We will be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.